Everyone loves to listen to a good book, and there are so many wonderful ones to choose, so we decided to bring you this podcast of Stories Come to Life. Each episode features a story from either classic or modern literature, especially chosen to be interesting and exciting to hear. So sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Welcome to Stories Come to Life. I am your host, Catherine Lopez-Luker. What a strange new life it is for young Elizabeth Ann when she wakes up in the first morning of her time in Vermont. She does so many things for the very first time today. She gets herself up and dressed, fixes her own hair, and even learns how butter is made. But how can the Putney people expect her to go to school all by herself on this very first day? It's just too much. Elizabeth Ann, or Betsy as everyone here calls her, is completely unprepared for all these new experiences. Now sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Understood Betsy, Chapter 3 A Short Morning Aunt Abigail was gone. Eleanor was gone. The room was quite empty except for the bright sunshine pouring in through the small-paned windows. Elizabeth Ann stretched and yawned and looked about her. What funny wallpaper it was. So old-fashioned looking. The picture was of a blue river and a brown mill, with green willow trees over it. And a man with sacks on his horse's back stood in front of the mill. This picture was repeated a great many times, all over the paper. And in the corner where it hadn't come out even, They had had to cut it right down the middle of the horse. It was very curious looking. She stared at it a long time, waiting for somebody to tell her when to get up. At home, Aunt Frances always told her and helped her get dressed. But here, nobody came. She discovered that the heat came from a hole in the floor near the bed, which opened down into the room below. From it came a warm breath of baking bread, and a muffled thump once in a while. The sun rose higher and higher, and Elizabeth Ann grew hungrier and hungrier. Finally, it occurred to her that it was not absolutely necessary to have somebody tell her to get up. She reached for her clothes and began to dress. When she had finished, she went out into the hall, and with a return of her aggrieved, abandoned feeling, you must remember that her stomach was very empty, She began to try to find her way downstairs. She soon found the steps and went down them one at a time, and pushed open the door at the foot. Cousin Anne, the brown-haired one, was ironing near the stove. She nodded and smiled as the child came into the room and said, Well, you must feel rested. Oh, I haven't been asleep, explained Elizabeth Anne. I was waiting for somebody to tell me to get up. Oh, said Cousin Anne, opening her black eyes a little, were you? She said no more than this, but Elizabeth Ann decided hastily that she would not add, as she had been about to, that she was also waiting for somebody to help her get dressed and do her hair. As a matter of fact, she had greatly enjoyed doing her own hair, the first time she had ever tried it. It had never occurred to Aunt Frances that her little baby girl had grown up enough to be her own hairdresser. 
nor had it occurred to Elizabeth Ann that this might be possible. But as she struggled with the snarls, she had had a sudden wild idea of doing it a different way from the pretty fashion Aunt Frances always followed. Elizabeth Ann had always secretly envied a girl in her class whose hair was all tied back from her face with one big knot in her ribbon at the back of her neck. It looked so grown up, and this morning she had done hers that way, turning her neck till it ached so that she could see the coveted tight effect at the back. And still, aren't little girls queer? Although she had enjoyed doing her own hair, she was very much inclined to feel hurt because Cousin Anne had not come to do it for her. Cousin Anne set her iron down with the soft thump, which Elizabeth Anne had heard upstairs. She began folding a napkin and said, Now reach yourself a bowl off the shelf yonder. The oatmeal's in that kettle on the stove, and the milk is in the blue pitcher. If you want a piece of bread and butter, here's a new loaf just out of the oven, and the butter's in that brown crock. Elizabeth Ann followed these instructions and sat down before this quickly assembled breakfast in a very much surprised silence. At home, it took the girl more than half an hour to get breakfast and set the table, and then she had to wait on them besides. Elizabeth Ann began to pour the milk out of the pitcher and stopped suddenly. Oh, I'm afraid I've taken more than my share, she said apologetically. Cousin Anne looked up from her rapidly moving iron and said, in an astonished voice, Your share? What do you mean? My share of the quart, explained Elizabeth Ann. At home, they bought a quart of milk and a cup of cream every day, and they were all very conscientious about not taking more than their due share. Good land, child! Take all the milk you want, said Cousin Anne as though she found something shocking in what the little girl had just said. Elizabeth Ann thought to herself that she spoke as though milk ran out of a faucet like water. She was fond of milk, and she made a good breakfast as she sat looking about the low-ceilinged room. It was unlike any room she had ever seen. It was, of course, the kitchen, and yet it didn't seem possible that the same word could be applied to that room and the small, dark cubbyhole, which had been Grace's asthmatical kingdom. This room was very long and narrow, and all along one side were windows, with white ruffled curtains drawn back at the sides, and with small, shining panes of glass, through which the sun poured golden light on a long shelf of potted plants that took the place of a window sill. The shelf was covered with shining white oilcloth, the pots were of clean reddish-brown, the sturdy stocky plants of bright green with clear red and white flowers. Elizabeth Ann's eyes wandered all over the kitchen, from the low white ceiling to the clean bare wooden floor, but they always came back to those sunny windows. Once, back in the brick school building, as she had sat drooping her thin shoulders over her desk, some sort of a procession had gone by, with a brass band playing a lively air. For some reason, every time she now glanced at that sheet of sunlight and the bright flowers, she had a little of the same thrill which had straightened her back and gone up and down her spine while the band was playing. Possibly Aunt Frances was right after all. 
and Elizabeth Ann was a very impressionable child. I wonder, by the way, if anybody ever saw a child who wasn't. At one end, the end where Cousin Anne was ironing, stood the kitchen stove, gleaming black, with a tea kettle humming away on it, a big hot water boiler near it, and a large kitchen cabinet with lots of drawers and shelves and hooks and things. Beyond that, in the middle of the room, was the table where they had had supper last night, and at which the little girl now sat eating her very late breakfast. And beyond that, at the other end of the room was another table, with an old dark red cashmere shawl on it for a cover. A large lamp stood in the middle of this, a bookcase near it, two or three rocking chairs around it, and back of it against the wall was a wide sofa, covered with bright fabric, with three bright pillows. Something big and black and woolly was lying on this sofa, snoring loudly. As Cousin Anne saw the little girl's fearful glance alight on this, she explained, "'That's Shep, our old dog. Doesn't he make an awful noise?' Mother says when she happens to be alone here in the evening, it's real company to hear Shep snore, as good as having a man in the house. Although this did not seem at all a sensible remark to Elizabeth Ann, who thought soberly to herself that she didn't see why snoring made a dog as good as a man, still she was acute enough, for she really was quite an intelligent little girl, to feel that it belonged in the same class of remarks as one or two others she had noted as queer in the talk at Putney Farm last night. This variety of talk was entirely new to her. Nobody in Aunt Harriet's conscientious household ever making anything but plain statements of fact. It was one of the queer Putney ways, which Aunt Harriet had forgotten to mention. It is possible that Aunt Harriet had never noticed it. When Elizabeth Ann finished her breakfast, Cousin Anne made three suggestions, using exactly the same accent for them all. She said, Hadn't you better wash up your dishes now before they get sticky? And don't you want one of those red apples from the dish on the side table? And then maybe you'd like to look around the house, so's to know where you are. Elizabeth Ann had never washed a dish in all her life, and she had always thought that nobody but poor, ignorant people, who couldn't afford to hire girls, did such things. And yet, it was odd, she did not feel like saying this to Cousin Anne, who stood there so straight in her gingham dress and apron, with her clear bright eyes and red cheeks. Besides this feeling, Elizabeth Ann was overcome with embarrassment at the idea of undertaking a new task in that casual way. How in the world did you wash dishes? She stood rooted to the spot, irresolute, horribly shy, and looking, though she didn't know it, very clouded and sullen. Cousin Anne said briskly, holding an iron up to her cheek to see if it was hot enough, just take them over to the sink there and hold them under the hot water faucet. They'll be clean in no time. The dish towels are those hanging on the rack over the stove. Elizabeth Ann moved promptly over to the sink as though Cousin Anne's words had shoved her there. And before she knew it, her saucer, cup, and spoon were clean, and she was wiping them on a dry checked towel. The spoon goes in the side table drawer with the other silver, 
and the saucer and cup in those shelves there behind the glass doors where the china belongs, continued Cousin Anne, thumping hard with her iron on a napkin, not looking up at all. And don't forget your apple as you go out. Those northern spies are just getting to be good about now. When they first come off the tree in October, you could shoot them through an oak plank. Now Elizabeth Ann knew that this was a foolish thing to say, since, of course, an apple could never go through a board. But something that had always been sound asleep in her brain woke up a little, little bit and opened one eye, for it occurred dimly to Elizabeth Ann that this was rather a funny way of saying that northern spies are very hard when you first pick them in the autumn. She had to figure it out for herself slowly, because it was a new idea to her, and she was halfway through her tour of inspection of the house before there glimmered on her lips, in a faint smile, the first recognition of a joke in all her life. She felt like calling down to Cousin Anne that she saw the point, but before she had taken a single step toward the head of the stairs, she had decided not to do this. Cousin Anne, with her bright, dark eyes, and her straight back, and her long arms, and her way of speaking as though it never occurred to her that you wouldn't do just as she said, Elizabeth Ann was not sure that she liked Cousin Anne, and she was very sure that she was afraid of her. So she went on, walking from one room to another, industriously eating the red apple, the biggest she had ever seen. It was the best, too, with its crisp white flesh and the delicious sour sweet juice, which made Elizabeth Ann feel with each mouthful, like hurrying to take another. She did not think much more of the other rooms in the house than she had of the kitchen. There were no draped throws over anything. There were no lace curtains at the windows, just dotted Swiss like the kitchen. All the ceilings were very low. The furniture was all of dark wood and very old-looking. What few rugs there were were of bright-colored rags. The mirrors were queer and old, with funny pictures at the top. All the beds were old wooden ones with posts, and curtains round the tops. And there wasn't anything fancy in the parlor, whereas at Aunt Harriet's the parlor was full of fanciness for that one room. She was glad to see no piano. In her heart she had not liked her music lessons at all but she had never dreamed of not accepting them from Aunt Frances, as she had accepted everything else. Also, she had liked to hear Aunt Frances boast about how much better she could play than other children of her age. She was downstairs by this time, and, opening a door out of the parlor, found herself back in the kitchen, the long line of sunny windows and the bright flowers giving her that quick little thrill again. Cousin Anne looked up from her ironing, nodded, and said, All through? You'd better come in and get warmed up. These rooms get awfully cold these January days. Winters, we mostly use this room so's to get the good of the kitchen stove. She added after a moment, during which Elizabeth Ann stood by the stove, warming her hands. There's one place you haven't seen yet. The milk room. Mother's down there now, churning. That's the door, the middle one. Elizabeth Ann had been wondering and wondering where in the world Aunt Abigail was. 
So she stepped quickly to the door and went down the cold, dark stairs she found there. At the bottom was a door, locked apparently, for she could find no fastening. She heard steps inside. The door was briskly cast open, and she almost fell into the arms of Aunt Abigail, who caught her as she stumbled forward, saying, Well, I've been expecting you down here for a long time. I never saw a little girl yet who didn't like to watch butter making. Don't you love to run the butter worker over it? I do myself, for all I am seventy-two. I don't know anything about it, said Elizabeth Ann. I don't know what you make butter out of. We always bought ours. Well, for goodness sake, said Aunt Abigail. She turned and called across the room. Henry, did you ever? Here's Betsy saying she doesn't know what we make butter out of. She actually never saw anybody making butter. Uncle Henry was sitting down near the window, turning the handle of a small barrel swung between two uprights. He stopped for a moment and considered Aunt Abigail's remark with the same serious attention he had given to Elizabeth Ann's discovery about left and right. Then he began to turn the churn over and over again and said peaceably, Well, mother, you never saw anybody laying asphalt pavement, I warrant you, and I suppose Betsy knows all about that. Elizabeth Ann's spirits rose. She felt very superior indeed. Oh, yes, she assured them. I know all about that. Didn't you ever see anybody doing that? Why, I've seen them hundreds of times. Every day as we went to school, they were doing over the whole pavement for blocks along there. Aunt Abigail and Uncle Henry looked at her with interest. And Aunt Abigail said, Well, now, think of it. Tell us all about it. Why, there's a big black sort of wagon, began Elizabeth Ann, and they run it up and down and pour out the black stuff on the road. And that's all there is to it. She stopped rather abruptly, looking uneasy. Uncle Henry inquired, Now there's one thing I've always wanted to know. How do they keep that stuff from hardening on them? How do they keep it hot? The little girl looked blank. Why, a fire, I suppose, she faltered, searching her memory desperately and finding there only a dim recollection of a red glow somewhere, connected with the familiar scene. Of course, a fire, agreed Uncle Henry. But what do they burn in it? Coke or coal or wood or charcoal? And how do they get any draft to keep it going? Elizabeth Ann shook her head. I never noticed, she said. Aunt Abigail asked her now, What do they do to the road before they pour it on? Do, said Elizabeth Ann. I didn't know they did anything. Well, they can't pour it right on a dirt road, can they? asked Aunt Abigail. Don't they put down cracked stone or something? Elizabeth Ann looked down at her toes. I never noticed, she said. I wonder how long it takes for it to harden, said Uncle Henry. I never noticed, said Elizabeth Ann in a small voice. Uncle Henry said, oh, and stopped asking questions. Aunt Abigail turned away and put a stick of wood in the stove. Elizabeth Ann did not feel very superior now. And when Aunt Abigail said, now the butter's beginning to come, don't you want to watch and see everything I do? so as you can answer if anybody asks you how butter is made. Elizabeth Ann understood perfectly what was in Aunt Abigail's mind and gave to the process of butter making a more alert and aroused attention than she had 
ever before given to anything. It was so interesting, too, that in no time she forgot why she was watching, and was absorbed in the fascinations of the dairy for their own sake. She looked in the churn as Aunt Abigail unscrewed the top, and saw the thick, sour cream separating into buttermilk and tiny golden particles. It's gathering, said Aunt Abigail, screwing the lid back on. Father'll churn it a little more till it really comes. And you and I will scald the wooden butter things and get everything ready. You better take that apron there to keep your dress clean. Wouldn't Aunt Frances have been astonished if she could have looked in on Elizabeth Ann that very first morning of her stay at the hateful Putney farm and have seen her wrapped in a gingham apron, her face bright with interest, trotting here and there in the stone-floored milk room. She was allowed the excitement of pulling out the plug from the bottom of the churn and dodged back hastily to escape the gush of buttermilk spouting into the pail held by Aunt Abigail. And she poured the water to wash the butter and screwed on the top herself and again all herself, for Uncle Henry had gone off as soon as the butter had come swung the barrel back and forth six or seven times to swish the water all through the particles of butter. She even helped Aunt Abigail scoop out the great yellow lumps. Her imagination had never conceived of so much butter in all the world. Then Aunt Abigail let her run the curiously shaped wooden butter worker back and forth over the butter, squeezing out the water, and then pile it up again with her wooden paddle into a mound of gold. She weighed out the salt needed on the scales, and was very much surprised to find that there really is such a thing as an ounce. She had never met it before outside the pages of her arithmetic book, and she didn't know it lived anywhere else. After the salt was worked in, she watched Aunt Abigail's deft, wrinkled old hands make pats and rolls. It looked like the greatest fun, and too easy for anything. And when Aunt Abigail asked her if she wouldn't like to make up the last half pound into a pat for dinner, she took up the wooden paddle confidently. And then she got one of the surprises that Putney Farm seemed to have for her. She discovered that her hands didn't seem to belong to her at all, that her fingers were all thumbs, that she didn't seem to know in the least beforehand how hard a stroke she was going to give, nor which way her fingers were going to go. It was, as a matter of fact, the first time Elizabeth Ann tried to do anything with her hands, except to write and figure and play on the piano, and naturally she wasn't very well acquainted with them. She stopped in dismay looking at the shapeless, battered heap of butter before her, and holding out her hands as though they were not part of her. Aunt Abigail laughed, took up the paddle, and after three or four passes, the butter was a smooth yellow ball. Well, that brings it all back to me, she said. When I was a little girl, when my grandmother first let me try to make a pat, I was about five years old. My, what a mess I made of it. And I remember, doesn't it seem funny, that she laughed and said her great aunt Elmira had taught her how to handle butter right here in this very milk room. Let's see. Grandmother was born the year the Declaration of Independence was signed. That's quite a while ago, isn't it? But butter hasn't changed much, I guess, nor little girls either. Elizabeth Ann listened to this statement with a very queer, startled expression on her face, 
as though she hadn't understood the words. Now for a moment she stood staring up in Aunt Abigail's face, and yet not seeing her at all, because she was thinking so hard. She was thinking, why, there were real people living when the Declaration of Independence was signed. Real people, not just history people. Old women teaching little girls how to do things right in this very room, on this very floor. And the Declaration of Independence just signed. To tell the honest truth, although she had passed a very good examination in the little book on American history that they had studied in school, Elizabeth Ann had never to that moment had any notion that there ever had been really and truly any Declaration of Independence at all. It had been like the ounce, living only inside of her school books, for little girls to be examined about. And now Aunt Abigail, talking about a butter pat, had brought it all to life. Of course, all this only lasted a moment because it was such a new idea. She soon lost track of what she was thinking of, rubbed her eyes as though she were coming out of a dream. She thought confusedly, What did butter have to do with the Declaration of Independence? Nothing, of course, it couldn't. And the whole impression seemed to pass out of her mind. But it was an impression which was to come again and again during the next few months. Chapter 4 Betsy Goes to School Elizabeth Ann was very much surprised to hear Cousin Ann's voice calling, Dinner! down the stairs. It did not seem possible that the whole morning had gone by. Here, said Aunt Abigail, just put that pat on a plate, will you? And take it upstairs as you go. I've got all I can do to haul my own two hundred pounds up, without any half pound of butter into the bargain. The little girl smiled at this, though she did not know exactly why and skipped up the stairs proudly with her butter. Dinner was smoking on the table, which was set in the midst of a great pool of sunlight. A very large black dog with a great bushy tail was walking around and around the table, sniffing the air. He looked as big as a bear to Elizabeth Ann, and as he walked, his great red tongue hung out of his mouth, and his white teeth gleamed horribly. Elizabeth Ann shrank back in terror, clutching her plate of butter to her breast with tense fingers. Cousin Anne said over her shoulder, Oh, bother! There's old Shep, got up to pester us, begging for scraps. Shep, you go lie down this minute. To Elizabeth Ann's astonishment and immense relief, the great animal turned, drooping his head sadly, walked back across the floor, got up on the couch again, and laid his head down on one paw very forlornly, turning up the whites of his eyes meekly at Cousin Anne. And Abigail, who had just pulled herself up the stairs, panting, said between laughing and puffing, I'm glad I'm not an animal on this farm. Anne does boss them around so. Well, somebody has to, said Cousin Anne, advancing on the table with a platter. This proved to have chicken fricassee on it and Elizabeth Ann's heart melted in her at the smell. She loved chicken gravy on hot biscuits beyond anything in the world. But chickens are so expensive when you buy them in the market that Aunt Harriet hadn't had them very often for dinner. And there was a plate of biscuits, golden brown, 
just coming out of the oven. She sat down very quickly, her mouth watering, and attacked the big plateful of food which Cousin Anne passed her. At Aunt Harriet's, she had always been aware that everybody watched her anxiously as she ate, and she had heard so much about her light appetite that she felt she must live up to her reputation and had a natural and human hesitation about eating all she wanted when there happened to be something she liked very much. But nobody here knew that she only ate enough to keep a bird alive and that her appetite was so capricious. Nor did anybody notice her while she stowed away the chicken and gravy and hot biscuits and currant jelly and baked potatoes and apple pie. When did Elizabeth Ann ever eat such a meal before? She actually felt her belt grow tight. In the middle of the meal, Cousin Anne got up to answer the telephone, which was in the next room. The instant the door had closed behind her, Uncle Henry leaned forward, tapped Elizabeth Ann on the shoulder, and nodded toward the sofa. His eyes were twinkling, and as for Aunt Abigail, she began to laugh silently, shaking all over, her napkin at her mouth to stifle the sound. Elizabeth Ann turned wonderingly, and saw the old dog cautiously and noiselessly letting himself down from the sofa. One ear cocked rigidly in the direction of Anne's voice in the next room. The old tyke, said Uncle Henry. He always sneaks up to the table to be fed, if Anne goes out for a minute. Here, Betsy, your nearest. Give him this piece of skin from the chicken neck. The big dog paddled forward across the room, evidently in such a state of terror that Elizabeth Ann felt for him. She had a fellow feeling about that relative of hers. Also, it was impossible to be afraid of so meek and guilty an animal. As old Shep came up to her, poking his nose inquiringly on her lap, she shrinkingly held out the big piece of skin, and though she jumped back at the sudden snap and gobbling gulp, with which the old dog greeted the tidbit, she could not but sympathize with his evident enjoyment of it. He waved his bushy tail gratefully, cocked his head on one side, and, his ears standing up at attention, his eyes glistening greedily, he gave a little begging whine. Oh, he's asking for more, cried Elizabeth Ann, surprised to see how plainly she could understand dog talk. Quick, Uncle Henry, give me another piece. Uncle Henry rapidly transferred to her plate a wing bone from his own, and Aunt Abigail, with one deft swoop, contributed the neck from the platter. As fast as she could, Elizabeth Ann fed these to Shep, who woofed them down at top speed, the bones crunching loudly under his strong white teeth. It did your heart good to see how he enjoyed it. There was the sound of the telephone receiver being hung up in the next room, and everybody acted at once. Aunt Abigail began drinking innocently out of her coffee cup, only her laughing old eyes showing over the rim. Uncle Henry buttered a slice of bread with a grave face, as though he were deep in conjecture about who would be the next president. And as for old Shep, he made one plunge across the room, his toenails clicking on the bare floor, sprang up on the couch, and when Cousin Anne opened the door and came in, he was lying in exactly the position in which she had left him, 
his paws stretched out, his head laid on them, his brown eyes turned up meekly, so that the whites showed, I've told you what these three did, but I haven't yet told you what Elizabeth Ann did, and it is worth telling. As Cousin Anne stepped in, glancing suspiciously from her sober-faced and abstracted parents, to the lamb-like innocence of old Shep, little Elizabeth Ann burst into a shout of laughter. It's worth telling about, because, so far as I know, that was the very first time she had ever laughed out heartily in all her life. For my part, I'm half surprised to know that she knew how. Of course, when she laughed, Aunt Abigail had to laugh too, setting down her coffee cup and showing all the funny wrinkles in her face, screwed up hard with fun. And that made Uncle Henry laugh. And then Cousin Anne laughed and said as she sat down, You are bad children, the whole four of you. And old Shep, seeing the state of things, stopped pretending to be meek, jumped down and came lumbering over to the table, wagging his tail and laughing too. You know, that good wide dog smile. He put his head on Elizabeth Ann's lap again, and she patted it and lifted up one of the big black ears. She had forgotten that she was terribly afraid of big dogs. After dinner, Cousin Anne looked up at the clock and said, My goodness, Betsy'll be late for school if she doesn't start right off. She explained to the child, aghast at this sudden thunderclap, I let you sleep this morning as long as you wanted to, because you were so tired from your journey. But of course there's no reason for missing the afternoon session. As Elizabeth Ann continued sitting perfectly still, frozen with alarm, Cousin Ann jumped up briskly, got the little coat and cap, helped her up, and began inserting the child's arms into the sleeves. She pulled the cap well down over Elizabeth Ann's ears, felt in the pocket, and pulled out the mittens. There, she said, holding them out, you'd better put them on before you go out, for it's a real cold day and she led the stupefied little girl along toward the door. Aunt Abigail came after them and put a big sugar cookie into the child's hand. Maybe you'll like to eat that for your recess time, she said. I always did when I went to school. Elizabeth Ann's hand closed automatically about the cookie, but she scarcely heard what was said. She felt herself to be in a bad dream. Aunt Frances had never, no, never let her go to school alone, and on the first day of the year always took her to the new teacher and introduced her and told the teacher how sensitive she was and how hard to understand, and then she stayed there for an hour or two till Elizabeth Ann got used to things. She could not face a whole new school all alone. Oh, she couldn't. She wouldn't. She couldn't horrors. Here she was in the front hall. She was on the porch. Cousin Anne was saying, now run along, child. Straight down the road till the first turn to the left, and there in the crossroads, there you are. And now the front door closed behind her. The path stretched before her to the road, and the road led down the hill, the way Cousin Anne had pointed. Elizabeth Anne's feet began to move forward and carried her down the path, although she was still crying out to herself, I can't! I won't! I can't! 
Are you wondering why Elizabeth Ann didn't turn right around, open the front door, walk in and say, I can't, I won't, I can't, to Cousin Anne? The answer to that question is that she didn't do it because Cousin Anne was Cousin Anne. There is more in that than you think. In fact, there is a mystery in it that nobody has ever solved. Not even the greatest scientists and philosophers, although, like all scientists and philosophers, they think they have gone a long way toward explaining something they don't understand by calling it a long name. The long name is personality, and what it means nobody knows, but for all that it is perhaps the most important thing in the world. Yet we know only one or two things about it. We know that anybody's personality is made up of the sum total of all the actions and thoughts and desires of his or her life. And we know that though there aren't any words or any figures or any languages to set down that sum total accurately, still, it is one of the first things that everybody knows about anybody else. And that really is all we know. So I can't tell you why Elizabeth Ann did not go back and sob and cry and say she couldn't and she wouldn't and she couldn't, as she would certainly have done at Aunt Harriet's. You remember that I could not even tell you why it was that, as the little fatherless and motherless girl lay in bed, looking at Aunt Abigail's old face, that she should feel so comforted and protected that she must needs break out crying. No, all I can say is that it was because Aunt Abigail was Aunt Abigail. But perhaps it may occur to you that it's rather a good idea to keep a sharp eye on your personality, whatever that is. It might be handy, you know, to have a personality like Cousin Anne's, which sent Elizabeth Anne's feet down the path. Or perhaps you would prefer one like Aunt Abigail's. Well, take your choice. You must not, of course, think for a moment that Elizabeth Ann had the slightest intention of obeying Cousin Anne. No, indeed. Nothing was farther from her mind as her feet carried her along the path and into the road. In her mind was nothing but rebellion and fear and anger and, oh, such hurt feelings. She turned sick at the very thought of facing all the staring, curious faces in the playground, turned on the new scholar as she had never seen them do at home. She would never, never do it. She would walk around all the afternoon and then go back and tell Cousin Anne that she couldn't. She would explain to her how Aunt Frances never let her go out of doors without a loving hand to cling to. She would explain to her how Aunt Frances always took care of her. It was easier to think about what she would say and do and explain away from Cousin Anne, than it was to say and do it before those black eyes. Aunt Frances's eyes were soft, light blue. Oh, how she wanted Aunt Frances to take care of her. Nobody cared a thing about her. Nobody understood her but Aunt Frances. She wouldn't go back at all to Putney Farm. She would just walk on and on till she was lost, and the night would come and she would lie down and freeze to death. And then, wouldn't Cousin Anne feel? <gasps> Someone called to her. Isn't this Betsy? She looked up astonished. A young woman in a gingham dress and a white apron like those at Putney Farm 
stood in front of a tiny square building, like a toy house. Isn't this Betsy? asked the young woman again. Your cousin Anne said you were coming into school today, and I've been looking out for you. But I saw you going right by, and I ran out to stop you. Why, where is the school? asked Betsy, staring around for a big brick four-story building. The young woman laughed and held out her hand. This is the school, she said, and I am the teacher, and you'd better come right in, for it's time to begin. She led Betsy into a low-ceilinged room, with geraniums at the windows, where about a dozen children of different ages sat behind their desks. At the first sight of them, Betsy blushed crimson with fright and shyness, and hung down her head. But, looking out of the corners of her eyes, she saw that they too were all red-faced and scared-looking, and hung down their heads, looking at her shyly out of the corners of their eyes. She was so surprised by this that she forgot all about herself and looked inquiringly at the teacher. They don't see many strangers, the teacher explained, and they feel shy and scared when a new scholar comes, especially one from the city. Is this my grade? asked Elizabeth, thinking at the very smallest grade she had ever seen. This is the whole school, said the teacher. There are only two or three in each class. You'll probably have three in yours. Miss Anne said that you were in the third grade. There, that's your seat. Elizabeth Anne sat down before a very old desk, much battered and hacked up with knife marks. There was a big HP carved just over the inkwell, and many other initials scattered all over the top. The teacher stepped back to her desk and took up a violin that lay there. Now, children, we'll begin the afternoon session by singing America, she said. She played the air over a little, sweetly and stirringly, and then as the children stood up, she came down close to them, standing just in front of Betsy. She drew the bow across the strings in a big chord and said, Now! And Betsy burst into song with the others. The sun came in the windows brightly. The teacher, too, sang as she played, and the children, even the littlest ones, opened their mouths wide and sang with all their hearts. This is your host, Catherine Lopez Luker. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Stories Come to Life. Be sure to join us next time when we continue to listen to Understood Betsy. You can find a link to our podcast on the Marshall Public Library webpage, www.marshallpl.org. I'll talk to you again soon.